Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. For this last mini-episode of Season 2, I present to you everything, well, maybe not everything, but a lot of the important, relevant, and interesting stuff about psychiatric meds, all in under 20 minutes. Here we go. First thing to clarify, the categories under which we group psychiatric meds are a total mess and are often confusing or flat out wrong. Many meds that are commonly called antidepressants are not, in fact, antidepressants. Most of the so-called mood stabilizers can help to prevent or treat manic symptoms or agitation, but they typically do little to prevent or treat depression, which then actually makes them anti-manic agents, not bona fide mood stabilizers. And many of the newer atypical antipsychotics do little to treat severe psychosis, but are often quite helpful for depression and or mania. A confusing start, I know, but I think things will get clearer as we go. First, let's start with the meds which revolutionized psychiatry in the early 90s, the SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Prior to the SSRIs, we had a number of effective medications such as the tricyclic antidepressants and the MAO inhibitors, but these meds tended to have a number of serious side effects and were very deadly in overdose. The SSRIs were the first generally safe and effective psych meds, but for a complicated set of reasons, they were quickly branded as antidepressants, even though they tend to do very little for most types of depression, save postpartum depression or depression arising out of neuroticism or severe anxiety. The SSRIs are primarily anxiety meds. They are anti-rumination and anti-panic meds. They work both on above-the-neck and below-the-neck anxiety, though, interestingly, they seem to do very little for anxiety, which arises out of trauma, PTSD. The sweet spot of SSRIs is the spin cycle catastrophizing ruminating brain. SSRIs dampen the neurological connection between the fear that is generated in the amygdala and the ruminating thoughts of the frontal lobe, thus dialing down the fear and dread associated with these thoughts. This is why they can be so helpful for OCD and body dysmorphia and generalized anxiety. SSRIs do not, however, directly address the primary symptoms of depression, including lack of energy, drive, and libido, or inability to find pleasure in life, the numbing of the mood and the spirit, or the often unbearable emotional pain of the depressed brain. If ruminating anxiety is the main driver of depression, then yes, SSRIs can be very helpful, but otherwise, no. I regularly see new patients who say that they have been on multiple antidepressants and none of them have worked. And then they start listing all the SSRIs, Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, Lexpro. And I tell them that actually, sadly, they haven't been on a true antidepressant yet. The main problems with SSRIs boil down to three areas. Number one, they can significantly affect sexual functioning, usually by delaying orgasm or making it very difficult to achieve. But they also can affect libido and sexual responsiveness in some people. Number two, as SSRIs dial down negative affect associated with fear and doubt, they can also sometimes mute positive feelings and emotional states. And finally, a small percentage of people can get manic, psychotic, or even suicidal on SSRIs. And these are typically folks with a genetic predisposition to bipolar disorder. 
And it appears that the SSRIs can be like a match on dry kindling for these latent bipolar states. If SSRIs aren't antidepressants, then what are? To get at the core symptoms of clinical depression, a medication needs to hit neurotransmitter systems other than serotonin. I'll break down the actual antidepressants into a few groups. First, we have the SNRIs, or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, such as Effexor, venlafaxine, or Cymbalta, deloxetine. SNRIs work best for anxious depression, serotonin activity being associated with anxiety relief, and norepinephrine activity associated with improved energy, focus, and cognition. They work best for people with depression associated with insomnia and constant worry. But their main downside is that, ironically, they can worsen insomnia and anxiety, at least initially. And they also can have sexual side effects like the SSRIs. Wellbutrin or bupropion is in class by itself with its combined dopamine and norepinephrine activity. Wellbutrin is sometimes called prison crack, and this speaks to its primary benefit and its main side effect. It can be very stimulating. It gets people off the couch and moving with more dopamine-mediated drive and motivation. But it can also trigger severe anxiety, agitation, and even suicidal thinking. Another problem with Wellbutrin is that it seems to lose efficacy after a few months. While Wellbutrin can help pull people out of a depressed hole, it usually has to be augmented or switched as depression returns. The most effective antidepressants for severe depression are lamictal lamotrigine, which I spoke about at length on the Desert Island Meds episode in Season 1. Certain atypical antipsychotics such as Latuda, Loracidone, and Abilify, Aripiprazole and the MAO inhibitors, which are not used so much anymore due to side effects and med interactions. And of course, ketamine, which in my opinion might be the best thing we have right now other than lamictal lamotrigine for treatment-resistant and severe depression. A brief recap on lamictal lamotrigine. It's typically labeled as a mood stabilizer, but it's not. It's a depression med. It both prevents and treats depressive symptoms it really does nothing for mania or agitation. Other than the occasional rash, it's usually very well tolerated without all the common, unfortunate side effects of the other antidepressants. And it works best with depression, with hypersomnia, or oversleeping, and also seasonal worsening, which usually signify a bipolar spectrum depression. Some, but not all, of the so-called atypical antipsychotics, such as Abilify and Latuda, have powerful antidepressant efficacy. But they also come with a host of serious potential side effects, like weight gain, diabetes, dyskinesias, which are involuntary movement disorders, and sexual dysfunction. Curiously, and very interestingly, this grouping of medications that we call atypical antipsychotics, such as Seroquel, Bilify, Chiodon, Safras, Raylar, Latuda, Risperdal, Zyprexa, Many of these do not work very well at all for actual psychosis. They are effective in preventing and treating mania, but for severe psychosis, most of these quote-unquote antipsychotics don't live up to their label. 
To address psychosis, we need to block the dopamine 2 receptor, or in the case of clozapine only, the dopamine 4 receptor. And most of the newer antipsychotics currently used in psychiatry don't do this very effectively. Of the newer generation antipsychotics, three stand above the rest. Cyprexo, lanzapine, risperdal, risperidone, and clozapine. Now, this might be a good time to divert and talk about both clozapine and the so-called mood stabilizers. Two of the episodes in season one, the first episode, Strawberries, and also Desperately Not Seeking Meth, both of these episodes highlighted the power of clozapine. Simply put, clozapine is, on average, the best antipsychotic, the best mood stabilizer, the best sleep med, and one of the best antidepressants. In fact, it could be argued that clozapine is the only true mood stabilizer as it effectively prevents and treats mania and prevents and treats depression. Now, it can have some pretty troublesome side effects for sure, and it can be difficult to tolerate, especially during the early weeks. But when clozapine works, it's a beautiful thing. Behind clozapine, in the hierarchy of true mood stabilizers, in a fairly distant second place is lithium and a few of the atypical antipsychotics, such as Abilify and Latuda. But curiously, the classic mood stabilizers, such as Depakote, Valproic Acid, Tigretol, Trileptal, they don't stabilize mood nearly as well as the so-called atypical antipsychotics, or clozapine, or lithium. Now, let's wrap up with the powerfully effective and potentially abusable and addictive psychiatric meds, the benzodiazepines and the stimulants. Benzodiazepines increase GABA, the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter of the brain. This fact explains much of what is great and what is not so great about benzos. They dial down fear, anxiety, and agitation, but they also diminish memory executive functioning, learning, coordination, and overall sensory input. Benzos function like a cooling wave of calm on a brain searing with fear and anxiety. And that's pretty awesome. Except there's another problem. Biological organisms and systems have these built-in homeostatic mechanisms. They evolve to be stable and to counteract drastic environmental changes and in inputs. And as a homeostatic biological organ, the brain responds to repeated benzodiazepine use by downregulating or minimizing the number of GABA receptors in the brain in its attempt to counteract the destabilizing influence of this medication. This downregulation of GABA receptors, however, means that the brain has become vulnerable and that its main braking system is now much weaker than before the introduction of the benzos. If the downregulation of GABA receptors is significant enough, and if the benzodiazepine is suddenly stopped, the brain is now thrown into a state where it can't self-regulate, and its stimulatory mechanisms overwhelm the calming breaks of the GABA system, leading to agitation, panic, severe insomnia, and possibly seizures and death. 
Benzodiazepines, along with alcohol, are the only two main drugs of abuse whose withdrawal syndrome can be fatal. Benzos are best used intermittently so as to prevent the brain's homeostatic downregulation of the GABA receptors and the concomitant dependence syndrome. If benzodiazepines are sort of like booze in a pill, then the stimulants, like Adderall, Vyvanse, and the various methylphenidate formulations, they're like cocaine in a pill. They crank up mood and energy and saliency, which basically means they make boring things interesting. Stimulants are super helpful for ADD, ADHD, and, problematically, they can also induce a state of mild mania with increased energy and drive, elevated mood and libido, decreased sleep need, and enhanced productivity. Again, like the benzos, if stimulants are used intermittently, they're generally pretty safe. But daily use can lead to downregulation of the stimulatory systems of the brain with eventual dependence and possibly addiction. A regular complaint I hear among patients on stimulants is that it's not working like it used to. Interestingly, patients with ADD, ADHD often can stay on the same dose for years and maintain the same efficacy. So when I hear about decreasing efficacy, this is my cue to ask about which specific effects are actually decreasing. And most of the time, what's diminishing is the juicy, fun stuff of stimulants, the mild manic symptoms, the euphoria, the productivity, all the stuff that's more sparkly and interesting and enjoyable. So a concluding note on these potentially addictive psych meds, please be careful. That's roughly the state of psych meds as of 2021. But some amazing things are on the horizon, as many of you know. MDMA, which is perhaps two to three years out from FDA approval, could transform the way we think about and treat trauma. Psilocybin, too, could be coming online in the next few years as a treatment for some types of depression and OCD. I can imagine a day in the not-so-distant future where daily oral psychiatric meds, that they're like this odd relic of the past. Where medications that need some consistency in blood levels are all done by time-release injections, thereby greatly lowering risks and side effects. While other patients do intermittent treatments with psychedelics and entheogens, maybe every few months or once or twice a year, with integration and psychotherapy in between, and then... We could always throw in some transcranial magnetic stimulation as needed for breakthrough symptoms. But all in all, these are really exciting and hopeful times in psychiatry. I so hope you found this episode helpful. I'd love any feedback from you through my website. And we'll be back soon with the final episode of Season 2.